Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hi everyone. It's Sunday the 6th of August today, which means it's been over four months since our last substantive episode and three months since Alan died. I'm really sorry it's taken me so long to take this first step. I miss Alan terribly, as we all do, and for me that's contributed to a kind of paralysis and indecision when it comes to the podcast. I'm not sure how to proceed with the pod now, but it's well past time for me to stop thinking about it and just give something a go. So here we go. The first thing I want to say is thank you to those of you listening right now for coming back and giving me a chance. Hopefully I'll make it worth your time. Second, I'm sure you understand that the podcast cannot go back to what it was before. Alan is irreplaceable. So in the weeks and months ahead, I'm going to try some different things and we'll see how it goes. What I can say with certainty is that I'll continue to be animated by the same core values, a focus on Australia in the world, the importance of foreign policy and statecraft, and epistemic humility, hopefully. Moreover, I want to keep delivering on what became our core offerings over time, an analysis of the news, an obsession with speeches, and a blending of scholarly and practitioner perspectives. In the weeks ahead, I'm planning to invite on various practitioners to talk, including past guests. And as much as possible, I'm going to think of these less as interviews and more as conversations with friends and colleagues on the important topics of the day, much how Alan and I approached our precious time together. But I don't have a guest today. I decided for this first episode back, I would not look to seat another immediately in the chair Alan would have occupied his memory and his absence fresh in my mind. I am not, however, alone. I have with me Walter Konagi, who was the final AIIA intern for the first iteration of the podcast, and Walter has generously agreed to stay involved for the time being. He is here to ask me some questions, the goal being to catch us up on the past four months of news. Obviously, we cannot go through the ins and outs, but Instead, we'll try to zoom out on some big picture themes. So, Walter, hello, and over to you. Hi, Darren, thanks. A lot has happened since late March that we can talk about. But as you've indicated, let's break up issues into bigger themes. And I think we have to start with Australia-China relations. If we go back to April, it's probably fair to say that bilateral relations were in a decent place. But that more recently, things became a bit more difficult, with a question mark over whether Prime Minister Albanese would indeed visit Beijing later this year. However, just a few days ago, Beijing announced the removal of barley tariffs. So perhaps things are on upswing once more. How have you assessed the trajectory over these past four months? Yes, by mid-April, months of efforts from both sides at what Foreign Minister Wong has called stabilisation had begun to bore fruit. And these efforts had taken the form of the resumption of ministerial dialogue, which brought the two capitals to a point where concrete policy actions could begin to be taken. 
So on the 11th of April, Australia suspended its WTO case against China on Bali in return for China promising an expedited review of the anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures that were the cause of the Bali blockage. Now, the strategic logic here was to allow Beijing a face-saving way of dismantling the tariffs. They could say they did a review, an internal review, and found the barriers were no longer necessary. And this was preferable to imposing the embarrassment of losing a WTO case, which it is widely expected they would. Now, such a strategic choice is not without trade-offs. There is an argument that allowing the WTO dispute resolution process to conclude is precisely what a rules-based order is for. But I do think the right call was made, since winning a legal case and winning the high moral ground would only, I think, have made Beijing less willing to negotiate more broadly, and there are many issues to negotiate. Here, the benefit of the rules-based order for Australia's interest was not in the formal outcome of a dispute resolution process, but in the negotiating leverage that process offered to come to an informal deal. And that's a nice illustration of an important theoretical point. The contribution of international rules and institutions is often not in their formal operation, but in the reputational benefits and costs of complying with them, and their ability to shape expectations and cost-benefit calculations about the optimal choice of strategy. Maybe in a practical sense, given these negotiations that succeeded for Bali, something similar could happen for wine and maybe for other commodities. Yes, that's where the conversation has shifted in the past few days. We did see some of the other informal barriers begin to melt away in April and May on copper, coal, cotton and timber, and it takes time for policy to permeate down through the Chinese system. You can have a high-level meeting, you can have an agreement, you can have state media reports that are guardedly optimistic about the trajectory of the bilateral relationship, but ultimately individual officials are very risk-averse and don't want to move ahead of the political winds. And so it takes time for the positive outcomes at that high level to get through and, and, and result in the removal of all blockages. Um, but look, things are trending in the right direction. Yes, Darren, that's quite a change from a month ago when it seemed far from clear that Bali duties would be removed. There were indeed political tensions increasing following Hong Kong authorities going after activists in Australia. That's right. In early July, Hong Kong authorities issued wanted notices and bounties for eight overseas-based activists that they accused of national security offences under the controversial national security law from 2020. Two of the individuals, Ted Huey and Kevin Yam, are in Australia, and Yam is an Australian citizen. Prime Minister Albanese called the moves unacceptable, while Beijing's foreign ministry called for Australia to, quote, stop providing a safe haven for fugitives. It was then about a week later that we saw the first report that an Albanese trip to Beijing might be in doubt, with the Sydney Morning Herald saying that DFAT officials had begun to sound out business leaders with ties to China that the PM might not travel. However, even before the successful Bali outcome, Albanese had said that a visit was likely, and he said that a formal invitation had been issued by China and that you know, he's always stressed that dialogue is a good thing and, and should be undertaken wherever possible. And the ideal occasion for a visit would be October, November this year, 
coinciding with the 50th anniversary of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam's visit to Beijing, which was the first ever visit to the PRC by an Australian PM. That will be very significant. But do you think that the Bali decision is enough for a visit to go ahead? I think so. Um, no doubt the government would prefer movement on wine, but I suspect Beijing has done enough. Consider the calculus facing each capital. Both sides have multiple interests in returning to and maintaining a stable relationship, but they also have interests cutting the other way. For Albanese, if there hadn't been movement on Bali, I think because the process was so public, he would have received too much criticism from the opposition and probably the media, and therefore he would not wanted to have gone. Uh, it would have made the decision to go politically too costly. But I think the Bali decision creates enough space for him to go. And if we think of China's perspective, Beijing probably already feels it's made enough concessions, relaxing the restrictions not just on Bali, but on those other commodities to enable a visit. Even though Canberra would say that all of the trade restrictions should never have been imposed in the first place. Now, both sides have other issues as well. Our government feels very strongly about the cases of Australian citizens Chung Lei and Yang Hengjun, but these are also very sensitive matters for Beijing. There's the question of Magnitsky style human rights sanctions on Chinese officials. There's an ongoing review of the Darwin port lease. And I think if, if our government imposed human rights sanctions or decided to cancel the Darwin port lease, that would heighten frictions and potentially endanger a visit. Penny Wong met with Wang Yi in Jakarta on the 13th of July, and Wang is, of course, China's most senior foreign policy official, and he's also recently resumed his former role as foreign minister, at least temporarily. In her opening remarks to Wang Yi in that meeting, Penny Wong said, quote, You and I have agreed in the past that a sound Australia-China relationship is not in contradiction with safeguarding our national interests. If both countries navigate our differences wisely, end quote. So the key phrase is obviously navigate our differences wisely. It's patently true for both countries that each has conflicting national interests when it comes to the other. How those conflicting interests are reconciled, how the inherent trade-offs are managed is the key. One approach could be to ignore one side of the trade-offs. For example, I expect there are some in the Australian debate who think that Australia should insist that Beijing removes all the trade barriers and that the WTO case should have proceeded regardless and that Magnitsky sanctions should be imposed and that the Darwin port lease should be cancelled. This perspective would hold that all of these decisions are in Australia's interests. But you could also take the other side on each of these questions, right? And argue that the opposite decision is also in Australia's national interests, depending on your perspective about what Australia's interests are and your assessment of Beijing's calculus. Which makes me think back to something Alan often said, foreign policy is the part of statecraft concerned with the way the nation state manages its interaction with other actors, mostly countries in the international system. It's the process through which the country acts in the world to advance its interests and protect its values so that in whatever way the currents of international politics move, your country always has options. So if we come back to Penny Wong's invocation of the verb navigate, to navigate has to be about the preservation of options. Yes, 
Sometimes the government must make firm decisions that will be costly and constrict future options, which is done when the nation's interests or its values absolutely demand it. But a lot, and perhaps most of the time, the process is one of navigation. Some give and some take. Words and actions that will therefore be open to criticism because trade-offs are inevitable, but with the broader purpose of keeping options open. So to finish off this topic, as of today, the evidence I think strongly supports the conclusion that this government has managed relations with Beijing very well since it took office. Mm. Well, let's turn to our next topic, Darren, then, which is US-China relations. We recall a consistent line from Washington about the need for guardrails in the relationship, which the Australian government has echoed. However, the Chinese side has not really endorsed this approach. After the balloon incident saw Secretary of State Blinken cancel his visit earlier this year, we've now seen visits from Blinken, Secretary of Treasury Yellen, and most recently, Climate Envoy John Kerry. Ahead is the possibility that she will visit the US in November for APEC, possibly including an invitation for a state visit from President Biden. Would you say this is a positive trajectory? Yes, I think so. And to answer that question, I want to turn to one of my favorite theoretical models, the two-level game. As a reminder, the two-level game imagines two countries bargaining over some issue. And if you think of a Venn diagram of two overlapping circles, each circle represents all the possible deals that would be politically acceptable to each country. And only when you have an overlapping area between the two circles, do you even have the possibility of a deal. Importantly, the size of each country's circle is heavily influenced not just by geopolitical and national security imperatives, but also by domestic politics. So when cooperation is going to cause domestic blowback, the size of the circle shrinks. The smaller each circle, the less likely there is going to be overlap, the less likely you get a deal. And the reality of this moment, if you call it Cold War II perhaps, is that both geopolitical competition and domestic politics have reduced the size of each circle. They've reduced the scope for cooperation. So when we advocate for an improvement in relations, when we hope for one, what we're asking for is for the two sides to make efforts to locate points within those overlapping circles. What would those points be? Well, the notion that World War III would be really bad, that crazy heat waves being experienced across the Northern Hemisphere are also bad or even simply that talking is important. But if an analyst or a pundit wants to say that one or both sides needs to do more, for example, that the US should not impose semiconductor export controls, or that China should take Ukraine's side against Russia, that analyst or pundit must propose a policy that either falls within the windset of both sides, or maybe they need to propose a strategy to expand the windset of one or both sides to make more deals possible. Expanding a windset can be done through a variety of forms of statecraft, including coercion and inducement. But most simply, you don't get cooperation, you don't find those points where the windsets overlap without communication, so more talking is a good thing. That's certainly true. But I've seen criticisms that Washington looks a bit weak sending a succession of US officials without reciprocation of high-level visits by Chinese officials. Do you think those criticisms have merit? I don't think so. For one thing, I think the domestic costs in the US of sending officials to visit, even the visuals of Janet Yelling bowing multiple times when she met her counterpart, 
are just not that high, as voters don't care. But there's a more important point. I recall a few years ago, actually when the Clubhouse app was a thing, and we were hosting live voice conversations on the platform, that the point was made at the time that for Australia, the best China policy was non-China policy. And what that meant was given Australia-China relations were in the deep freeze, Australia had to advance its interests vis-a-vis China through its relations with the rest of the region. If Canberra was worried about growing PRC influence in other countries, it needed to engage with those countries. If the goal was the removal of trade blockages, that meant rallying political support from as wide a range of governments as possible. Regular listeners will know that I've long understood Labor's approach to China, and especially Penny Wong's diplomacy, as directed very much at a regional audience. We need to be seen to be polite, reasonable, open to working with Beijing in order to maintain our credibility with the region. And now I think this logic also applies to Washington, effectively reversing the original mantra, by which I mean the best regional policy is now China policy. What do I mean by that? On the biggest questions of war, peace and regional order, buy-in from the region is essential. We know that above all else, the region, and I especially mean Southeast Asia here, does not want war. So the best thing Washington can do is demonstrate explicitly and repeatedly that it is doing everything within reason to help prevent war. That means talking. That means guardrails. That might mean losing a bit of face, sending a succession of officials to Beijing, because it means Washington can turn around to the region and say, look, we don't care about the optics. All we care about is resuming dialogue and installing guardrails in the relationship. And we know that you and the region care about this too. And then Washington can highlight Beijing's refusal to embrace the idea of guardrails and say to the region, who's being unreasonable here? If Beijing wants to be petulant and insist we come to them, then fine, we'll do that because like you, we care more about avoiding war than looking good. So I see the Biden administration's diplomacy as effective leadership because it demonstrates shared interests with the region. And to complete the logic, the most likely mechanism, or at least one likely mechanism to actually influence Beijing is going to be collective action from the region. For example, to pressure China not to escalate conflict with Taiwan. But such a collective effort first requires the US and Australia to build support within regional capitals right now by establishing credibility as reasonable actors, credibility that was, for example, harmed when the Pelosi visit to Taiwan happened last year. Well, I think that the issue of credibility lies at the core of the US relations with the region. Southeast Asia in particular is accustomed to Washington's swings between attention and neglect that come with each administration. The possible return of Trump in whichever form is particularly worrying for the region. That might not just mean heightened tensions with China, but could also bring about a grand bargain between the two great powers at the region's expense. This is not to be totally discounted given Trump's declared admiration for strong leaders and his transactional view of international politics. My question would then be, How can Washington maintain its credibility? Our structure of features, that is, the competition in which the US and China locked in, enough to reassure the region that Washington's policy won't take any unexpected turn? Or will all this effort in establishing credibility through dialogue 
be in vain with the changing administration? Excellent question. To an important extent, Washington's credibility as a benevolent superpower, if it ever existed, is gone. However, to a large extent, that credibility rested upon an extraordinary imbalance of power. The US's relative power and wealth meant that Washington could pursue its global interests at an acceptable cost, and the rest of the world knew that. That imbalance is never coming back. And what's more, political upheaval, as you point out, Walter, in the US system, whether it's Trump's potential return in 2025, or if he loses, the prospect of someone like Tucker Carlson becoming president in the future means that what you euphemistically describe as an unexpected policy turn can never again be ruled out. If listeners want to dig back into our archives to episode 44 in early 2020, Alan said, quote, I'm really struck by the way senior Australian policy advisors now talk about the United States in their private conversations. I don't mean that they have backed away from support for the alliance or belief in America's importance to Australia, but the caveats and cautions in their language are conspicuously different, and that reflects their experience of the Trump administration, which has been both erratic and incompetent, end quote. And that, of course, was in 2020 when Trump was still in office. So, Walter, I don't think structural forces in the form of geopolitical competition are going to be enough to reassure the region. And from here on in, prudent policy planning will include how to respond to a Trump-style presidency. From Australia's point of view, there are two considerations to keep in mind. First, credibility and reputation sit in a complex relationship with interests. If the US lacks credibility, that means regional states are, at the margins, less likely to make long-term commitments, otherwise in their interests, for fears Washington will back out. But this doesn't mean any government's going to become significantly more likely to act against its interests. Even if it were true that Beijing has more credibility for being consistent, and I'm not sure Xi Jinping's third term in office to date bears that out, China's interests, or perhaps more accurately, the Communist Party's interests, seem less and less in sync with the region because of the CCP's ever-growing obsession with regime security. A sensitive or even paranoid CCP is not necessarily likely to inspire long-term confidence either. Second is the question of how to influence Washington. Almost all the region wants greater US involvement, but worries both about US withdrawal or some kind of grand bargain with China at the region's expense. This means the strategic question is how to influence the US government, both the executive and the legislature, regardless of who is in power such that the whole system concludes that positive engagement remains in the US's national interest. I don't see nearly enough discussion about these topics. We've had two decades of scholarship now and commentary about how to shape China's choices and influence Beijing. I think we now need more on how to influence the US and bind the US to the region and the regional order in constructive ways. One mechanism for influence is building durable structures of minilateral or multilateral cooperation that generate both the vested interests and the political ballast to make policy U-turns harder. Another is direct influence in DC itself. I'm reminded of a nice paper from Alan Tidwell, 
that was published by the AIIA's scholarly journal, the Australian Journal of International Affairs, back in 2017 about diplomatic lobbying. And the paper details Australian efforts to engage with Congress in pursuit of our national interests, in particular through congressional liaison offices that sit within the embassy, and we're not the only embassy that has one. So I'd love to see more research on this topic and wonder about the scope of the region to work more collectively in thinking about and perhaps acting to wield influence in Washington. I think back to my debates with Alan about Australia's agency. To me, this here is an opportunity for the entire region to pursue more agency over the entire region's trajectory. Mm, That's also all we have time for today. But I propose we continue the podcast's traditional reading, listening and watching. Do you have a recommendation? Thanks, Walter. I do, although it's a bit of a solemn one. In early June, a public memorial service was held for Alan at the National Gallery, which both you and I attended, Walter. And I know it's often said about these types of events, but it really was a lovely and heartwarming celebration of Alan's life and offered a true sense of the breadth of his contribution to the nation and the profound personal impact he had on so many individuals. The service was recorded and is now on YouTube, so I'll post a link. There were some songs played during it, including a perhaps slightly less well-known Leonard Cohen song, which was a favourite of Alan's titled Come Healing. So I want to recommend that song as well. Finally, both Deputy Prime Minister Miles and Foreign Minister Wong gave speeches in Parliament about Alan following his passing, and Assistant Foreign Minister Watts made a statement. So I'll post links to the texts of those and information about how you can watch the recorded speeches in the live streams from Parliament from those days. There were also many other lovely things that were written and said. So for those interested, do spend some time checking the newspapers and various blogs um, for Alan in that May-June period. Walter, anything from you? Thanks, Darren. I do think there's a beautiful way to commemorate Alan. Your recommendations are yes, Sonnen, but what I appreciated was the lighthearted and affectionate tone of all the memories shared about Alan. And I hope your listeners will feel the same. I have a big backlog at the moment of my bookshelf, but I recommend an excellent book by Alan Bollard, former APEC executive director, titled Economists at War, which is tracing the personalities and the role played by influential economists in wartime. This is a very interesting read, given the economic impacts of the current war in Ukraine and the trade war between US and China. I have a final recommendation, because I've been watching the Glastonbury Festival, which took place last month, and I was literally blown away by a pretty odd performance. I recommend to all the Smiths fans to go on YouTube and watch Rick Astley's full set covering the Smiths. I just can't get enough of it. Rick Astley covering the Smiths. That is very cool, Walter. So thank you for that. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. If you got this far and found it worth your time, please consider telling your friends and colleagues that I've restarted. Australia in the World is written and produced by me, Darren Lim, with research editing and co-hosting today by Walter Konagi. And thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.